And I'd ask you, if you would, to turn in your copies of God's Word, or perhaps on your phone, to John chapter 6. We've been walking through the Gospel of John for some time now. I suppose it's uh, 13 weeks, because now we're on the 13th uh, sermon here. We're going to begin in verse 22. But because it's been a couple of weeks before... Uh, or, or since we have been in John, it's important to do just a little bit of background. It's important to reflect on the things that we have talked about uh, in the weeks past. Uh, this section of John is called the Bread of Life Discourse. It's one of Jesus's I Am statements where he, he talks about his identity. And, and in this teaching, it's intended to tell us about who God is and about the salvation that he brings. So I think the last time that we were in John together, Jesus did a sign. He did a miracle. He fed the 5,000. They were sitting on the hillside there, and of course it was 5,000 men, which means many more uh, women and children were there. And we learned that this was a picture of us in the gospel. It was a picture of our great need. We were, as it were, sitting on the hillside, unable to feed ourselves, unable to be satisfied, and Jesus did a miracle in order to provide what it was that we needed. We should have starved. Jesus provided the food that we needed. We had no way to feed ourselves, but Jesus uh, performed a miracle. This miracle mirrors the miracle of the gospel. Without a miracle done in our hearts, we will starve spiritually. And this is what the feeding of the 5,000, at least one thing that the feeding of the 5,000 uh, teaches us. But during that scene, remember, if, if you recall, Jesus asked Philip, where are we to buy bread? And this was a signal to Philip. Philip should have known, he should have, he should have remembered Isaiah 55, verses one through three, where God says, come. Come to the waters, and without money, without price, come, buy, and eat. Friends, everything that we need, God has provided in the gospel. So, so Jesus has already, as we're leading up to what we're looking at today in John chapter 6, Jesus has already been using bread as an illustration He's already been using water as an illustration. Remember when he spoke uh, to the woman of Samaria and he said he comes to give living water so that she will never thirst. He tells the people on the hillside, I have a, I have a bread, I have a bread that you need and he's gonna say today, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. So he's, he set us up, he has set us up to walk into these verses beginning in John 6, 22, and I would ask you to join with me in reading. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near that place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? 
And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor. This is very important. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? This is, of course, the question that mankind has asked for ages. God, what kind of works must we do to satisfy you? What kind of good deeds must we do in order to be right, in order to earn our way to heaven? But Jesus, in a very clever turn of phrase, puts their words on their heads. And he says this, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? You would imagine that the feeding the 5,000 would have been sign enough. But they continue asking for a sign. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. My goodness, Jesus has just given bread for some 15,000 people to eat, and they're still asking for a sign. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father. He gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Sir... Give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Would you pray with me, church? God, as we approach this passage of John chapter 6, there are so many things that could be said here. There is so much depth that a, a, a hundred lives would scarcely scratch the surface of, of what your word has here. But today we're going to make an attempt. We're going to make an attempt to say what it is that your word is saying here in the scriptures to expose what is in the text so that our lives might be changed. God, I pray that that we would give you worship because we see the beauty of your word. We see how, how you've set us up for this moment. You taught the woman of Samaria not to simply seek the water that, that leaves her thirsty, but to seek the living water, Christ. And today, after feeding the 5,000, we see that Jesus says, there is a bread that doesn't leave you hungry, and I am that bread. God, I pray that we would look to Christ not only for the forgiveness of sins, yes, for that, 
not only for the forgiveness of sins, but for fullness of life that comes to those who know you. God, would you give us this today? Would you help us to see beautiful things in your scriptures? In the name of Jesus, amen. I've entitled this sermon, Working Hard to Get to Heaven. I know that you've heard me. I I have a, a habit of using country music lyrics from time to time to illustrate points, and perhaps you remember me sharing the Alan Jackson song, Where I Come From. You know, where I come from, it's cornbread and chicken. Where I come from, it's a lot of front porch sitting and working hard to get to heaven where I come from. Friends, is that how we get to heaven? Do we get to heaven by working hard? That question is the question that people in this passage have come to ask Jesus. And that question is the question that Jesus answers in this passage. Are our good works sufficient? Are our good works good enough? What kind of work does God desire? We have to begin, though, asking this question. What kind of work does God desire or what kind of work does God require? Jesus begins by talking about the right motivations for living versus the wrong motivations for living. And it begins this way in verse 25. I want to direct your attention to that. It says in verse 25, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes. What would be an example of living your life for food that perishes? You know, just this morning, a couple of a number of weeks ago, or maybe just two or three weeks ago, Whitney and I went to an apple orchard. It's it's what you do in the fall. It's a it's a very common thing to to go in the early fall when it's still incredibly too hot and dress up in flannel clothes and take pictures while you're sweating to death because it's supposed to be this fall type thing to do. I don't know why this is fun, but it's what folks are supposed to do in the fall. And we went there and we got this little half gallon of apple cider. And now as I open up the fridge and, and look at the apple cider, this little half-gallon jug is bloated. It's, it's fermented. And before y'all run me out for having alcoholic beverages over at the parsonage, I just, I've noticed that it didn't take any time, it didn't take any time, it seemed, for that food to go bad, for that drink to spoil. And we can live our lives for things that spoil as well. We can chase after sandcastles instead of living for the kingdom of God that he has provided for us that brings life and and peace and meaning. And Jesus says, do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. This is the the gift of God. You see, our temptation is that we will spend our lives on the here and now, that we will consider our lives and our finances and our time and our energy to be poured out on us. And anything at the end of our life that we do not ultimately pour out on us was wasted. That's how the culture is trying to disciple us to spend our lives. But it's a trap. Living for self is a trap. 
how do we push back in this, in this culture that is so commercialized and, and trying to get us, every, I don't know if you've noticed this, but every commercial, it seems like, whether they're selling a, a car or a toothbrush, every commercial is talking about what you deserve, right? You, you deserve the best. You deserve this. Treat yourself. Give yourself some self-care or whatever the case may be. Our temptation is that we will spend our lives on the temporal instead of the eternal. When really God is calling us to something deeper and better and more satisfying. How would we push back against that? I'm, I'm doing my best to try to be as practical as I can be. I've got just a few thoughts that came to mind. And so I would encourage you just to consider these. These are not in the Bible, but they are, I think, biblical. I think they arise from the Bible as applications. Uh, I would say this. How would you push back against the desire to live for self? I would say, take one vacation. And instead of saving up for a family vacation... Save up for a family mission trip. Instead of saving up for one family vacation, take one of those and save up for a family mission trip. And if you want to go, I'll take you. And we'll go to somewhere cool and we'll see what's happening on the cutting edge of, of, um, of gospel advancement in some really neat places. I would say this, make sure that your finances have a little bit of pinch for the kingdom built into them. Now, I know that preachers can never really win when we talk about money, right? Because if I talk about money, it's like, oh, that's, that's all he cares about is my money. If I don't talk about it, then I'm being unfaithful to, to Jesus because he talked about money a lot. So I'm just, I'm just going to try to say this. God gave us instructions on generosity. He... he, he yes, we are supposed to give of our, of our time and our treasure out of obedience to him, but there's even something deeper that God is trying to do when he tells us to be generous. Because every dollar, every moment of time that we're generous with, that we give to his kingdom, is one less dollar that we can't spend on worshiping self. And so if we build a little bit of pinch into our budgets, then we almost protect ourselves a little bit from the temptation of living all of our lives for self. We, have, we are saying, in essence, to God, your kingdom is the one that lasts forever, so I'm going to make my ultimate investments there so that I don't end my life having made my ultimate investments in me. Here's the third thing I would encourage you to consider. Block out some time for ministry in your family, among yourself. Ephesians 4.12 says that that the job of the church is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And so if, if you're interested in how you can get involved in the ministry of the church, come and talk to me because I have all kinds of ideas for you. If there are folks you would like to visit and minister to, if there's evangelism you would like to join me in doing and, and sharing the gospel uh, with others, if, if there is some kind of behind-the-scenes type thing, I am served every week I am served every week by someone who largely puts the bulletin together for me and someone who folds the bulletin every week, doing the work of the church so that I can be freed up to do more work of the church for the sake of the gospel. And this is how the church pulls together. So I would encourage you, block out some time, budget some time for ministry 
And I would say this fourth, and this is perhaps the, the largest, how can you push back against self? I'm reminded of the purpose of marriage for those of you who are married. The purpose of marriage is to sanctify us. The purpose of marriage is to make us more like Jesus. But this is not the message about marriage that our culture tells us. Our culture tells us that the purpose of your marriage is to make you happy. That the purpose of your marriage is to fulfill you. To complete you, even, right? Friends, I would warn you against that because think about what it does. It sets you up to come to your spouse, your husband or wife, thinking, what can I get from this person? And if this person suddenly stops fulfilling my picture or my desires for what I think they need to do to make me happy, then maybe I can reconsider this relationship. I would just, in a moment of transparency, I would say that the times that Whitney and, and my marriage has had some friction or some conflict, we have always been able to, kind of in a, in a, in a post-mortem, looking back on the conflict that we just had, we've always been able to trace it back to the root of self. She wanted something, or more likely, I wanted something, and the me got in the way of the we, or the me got in the way of Christ. The purpose of our marriage is to show the world a picture of the gospel, Ephesians chapter 5. Our marriages are not ultimately for us. They're ultimately for Him. They're for Christ. And so, so living in a way, first of all, thinking that marriage can complete you, that's, that's not very considerate toward those who are unmarried. It says that they're lacking something. Well, we know that's not the case. Marriage is not here to complete us. It's here to be used as a pedestal to, to honor Christ. One time when I was a, a young man in high school and then in college, I had a really neat job, mostly in the summers. Um, but I, I was um, connected to a couple of people who were very successful and uh, very successful in a number of spheres of life as the world would consider it and um, they hired me to manage their property and this was really neat because they had a lot of it and they they just had a Kubota you know little um, recreational kind of like Ben drives around town you see that and um, and you know so if there was a dead tree I would just cut it down when the grass needed to be mowed I would cut the grass uh, they, they had horses, and they were invested in some horses that run in some big races and things like that. And so I would make sure the grass stayed off of their fence line, the electric fence and all that, and I would feed the horses and, and all of this stuff. And um, I suppose during this time when I was in high school or, or, or early college, I, I might have been dating a girl, and I remember the man asking me uh, about her, and he tried to offer me some advice. And he said, there's three things you need to know about a potential wife. I said, okay, what are they? And he said, can she cook? Can she clean? And what is her earning potential? Those were the three things he gave me. Yeah. 
I'm sorry to report uh, that marriage did not last. Um, I, I don't... I don't take any pleasure in saying that, but the reality is if you come to your spouse wanting or expecting that person to fulfill something in you, you're going to put a, a load on them that they can't bear. Okay? So run away from self. I'm not the marriage expert, right? I've been doing this for 10 years. I'm not the marriage expert, but I would just, I, I think the scriptures are clear enough that one thing that will kill any relationship is self. And so I would just say, run away from self in that arena. But then in the Bible, the discussion pivots a little bit. If you, if you pick up with me um, in, in verse 28, as these people ask this question, verse 28, it says this, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now I'm going to get into what's going on here in the text because there's actually some very clever, as I said earlier, a turn of phrase that's happening here. But before I get into this section, I need to say a couple of things about the way that I approach Scripture. There are places in Scripture that highlight God's sovereignty in salvation, right? There are places in Scripture that highlight man's responsibility in salvation, the need to respond. The, today is the day of salvation, right? And many times we treat these two things as if they are at war with one another, as if they are enemies of one another. But I would say to, to you, as we kind of look at this passage, this is one this is a passage that highlights God's sovereignty, the fact that we would not come to him were it not for his work in our hearts. This passage highlights God's sovereignty, but I would say to you, don't treat as enemies truths that God treats as friends. God is totally sovereign. Man is totally responsible to respond to call on God, to cry out to him for salvation. But when the text highlights man's responsibility, I will highlight man's responsibility. When the text highlights God's sovereignty, I have to highlight God's sovereignty. That's what seems to be in the text in John chapter 6. So I'm going to try my best to explain what's going on here. Because Look in verse 28 and see if you see what seems to be here. In verse 28, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? You know what they're asking him? They're asking what good work they can do to satisfy God. What good works must we do to be doing the works of God, the works that please God, the works that satisfy God? And Jesus answers, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. You see how clever that is? They're asking, what, can, what works can we do? Jesus responds with the work that he does. There are different ways to use this phrase of, like works of God. You could talk about the words of Greg, right? 
the words. The words of Greg could be the words that are spoken by Greg, right? Greg's words. This is a, the words of Greg. Or words of Greg could be words that are spoken by someone else about me. Does that make sense? This is turn a phrase that happens here that's, that's very clever and the, and the commentators bring it out. And so I want to put that on display for you here. While they are asking, what can we do to earn salvation? Seven times in these five or six verses, God uses the word give. The word give, give, give is repeated seven times here. They want to know which ladder do I climb to get to God and God wants to highlight the gift of Him, the gift that comes from Him uh, in salvation. Of course, the context, if, if, you, if you ever uh, go to seminary and take a class in Bible interpretation, it's called hermeneutics, Bible interpretation, and, and they tell you, and sometimes a professor, you know, my professor in college always had this little thing he did. He would put a, like a crown on his head. Like he would do this every, he said, context is king. Context is king. And look at what's around this. Look at the context of this, of this passage. It says in verse 37, if you, perhaps in my Bible, you, I have to turn a page. But if you look in verse 37, it says this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And then you look also in verse 44. I'm sorry, verse 39. This is the will who, of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 44. No one can come to me. This is, of course, we did not read this, but we will read it next week. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. But if we can cut through the weeds, if we can cut through the weeds, I think we might see what Jesus is trying to teach us. What Jesus is trying to teach us is this. He's trying to highlight that those who are in Christ are safe and secure. Those who are in Christ are safe and secure, not because of our works. Friends, if salvation were by our works, we would lose it. I've heard someone say before, if it were possible to lose your salvation, you would have, right? I don't know if you feel that, if you feel like your heart is as fickle and as sinful as mine is, but if it were possible to lose my salvation, I would have. Trust me, I would have. But the reason that we are safe and secure is because our salvation does not depend on the good works that we do. We are safe and secure in Christ because salvation depends on the work that Jesus did. And because of what He did, we are safe and secure. I want to apply this. Sometimes I counsel with very godly people who are seeking to follow the Lord and trust Him. They're sincere and sometimes whether it's because of an illness or a loss in their family or whether it's because they're nearing the end of their life, they struggle with assurance of their salvation, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there. Very faithful people know the Lord struggle for assurance that they are safe and secure in Christ. And I would say this to you. From my own experience and my own heart, 
and from counseling some people in this situation, I think a great deal of doubt over whether we are safe and secure in Christ for those who are believing, for those who have turned away from their sins, confess Christ as their Savior. I think a great deal of that doubt comes from accidentally slipping out of gospel mode. Like, I'm here because of Christ. I'm here because of His work. I have no good works. We slip out of that gospel mode and we slip back into works mode just for a moment just enough to begin to doubt because friends if you start to ask what have I done to make myself worthy the answer of course is nothing we should doubt we should doubt whether we are safe if it is based on our works but if it is based on the finished work of Jesus friend you are safe and secure And so many times, every day, we wake up and remind ourselves, preach the gospel to ourselves. I am not in Christ because of my good works. I am in Christ because of His good works. That is why I am saved. If, Friend, I would say this to you on the the authority of the Scriptures. If you are trusting in Jesus as your only hope, as your only hope of goodness, as your only hope of salvation, if you have turned away from your sins and have come to hate them, I can say this on the authority of Scripture, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. You are safe and secure because of what he did. So rest, rest in Jesus. Lastly, There's a point about the identity of Christ. What kind of identity does Christ have? Look in verse 30. Verse 30, as Jesus begins this I am statement. They said to him, of course, then what sign do you do that we may see and and believe you? You see their hardness of heart. Seems like if it were signs that would push them over the hump, the signs would have already done it. But they still asking for more signs. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Isn't this interesting? They are quoting a story from generations and generations and generations ago. And they're saying, that really happened. Right? God came through and gave manna to our fathers. But the bread that you just gave us yesterday, oh, we've suddenly gotten amnesia about that. We've forgotten about the miracle that you just did. You see how, how shifting and fickle their hearts are. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread, but my Father. He gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now Jesus is talking in the third person. He's saying the bread is He. The bread is someone. Who could this bread be? They say, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. See, when Jesus says these I am statements, you know who he's equating himself with? The the God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, who said, I am that I am. 
When Jesus says, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, he's, he's dog whistling to them. He's saying, do you have ears to hear the goodness? Do you, do you hear what I'm saying? I am him. I am God. He satisfies fully. I want to draw your attention to verse 35. And this is the last point that we will make. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Hunger and thirst. Hunger and thirst. Jesus, friends, doesn't simply save us from our sins. He intends to satisfy us. He intends to give us what our hearts are longing for at the deepest level we could possibly desire. In Exodus, Moses struck the rock and water came and the people drank for a day. In the New Testament, God struck the rock, Jesus, and blood and water flowed and anybody who comes to Jesus will never thirst again. In the Old Testament, God gave manna in the wilderness and the people ate for a day. In the New Testament, God the Father gave living bread, better bread, the bread of life. And whoever eats of that bread will never hunger again. Christ satisfies. He brings peace. He brings fullness of life. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. But I came, Jesus says, that they may have life and have it abundantly. The enemy, one of the ways that he seeks to steal and kill and destroy is by convincing us that cheap imitations are worth pursuing, right? I don't know if you've experienced this. Everything that leads us to a trap is shiny and looks good and feels good and seems to satisfy us, right? When I was a kid, a a fair came to Winston-Salem every fall. And uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina, there, it was a big deal uh, we lived in a rural community, so many people were going out and doing the agricultural side of that. I remember I was there more for the games and the bumper cars and everything when I was six or seven. I remember winning a prize at some game at the fair. And it was a cap gun, right? It was like this cap rifle. I was all about it. I was all about it. But when I went up to the man at the booth to get my prize, he tried to give me some advice. He said, now listen, this cap gun over here, all the kids like it because it looks really, really cool. But we've been getting a lot of feedback that it breaks in about 15 or 20 minutes. He said, this cap gun over here doesn't look very cool, but it has been lasting a long time. Well, Greg, six or seven years old, I want to get the one that looks like the one in the movie. And I said, I'll take my chances. I think I'll take my chances on the cool-looking cap gun. And I take it. It was broken before we got home. And now I don't have a cap gun at all. 
I have some really cool looking pieces of a cap gun. And I thought to myself, you know, this is an illustration for what the enemy tries to do to us. He tries to sell us on satisfaction. And the satisfaction is like sugar. It gives you the instant high and then it burns out and it just leaves you old and frumpy and addicted to, to sugar. The enemy tries to sell us on cheap imitations. Christ comes to rescue us out of the patterns of life that lead to death. And it's not because Christ wants to kill our joy. Jesus doesn't call us out of our sin because he wants to kill our joy. He calls us out of self and he calls us out of sin because he wants to be our joy. He has come so that we may have life and have it abundantly. While our culture says you do you, and while our culture says whatever makes you happy, Jesus says there is a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. James Taylor, in 1970, he sang a song making fun of people, I love James Taylor, by the way, but I just don't agree with everything he says. You know, it's possible to do that. It's possible to love someone and not agree with them. It's still possible in our culture. He sang a song making fun of people who believe in the eternal. He sang these words. There's a song that they sing when they take to the highway. There's a song that they sing when they take to the sea. There's a song that they sing of their home in the sky. Baby, you can believe it if it helps you to sleep. But singing works just fine for me. In another song, he sang these words. And an entire generation drank deeply of these words. If it feels nice, don't think twice. But James Taylor, of course, a man who was broken himself. The song Fire and Rain has to do with his deep depression and his electrocardia, the ECT therapy that he underwent where um, they would shock you and then put you in tubs of ice water at a mental hospital. The fire is the electricity and the rain is the ice water. In a moment of honesty, he took a step back and said something that I think we should all uh, consider. Every now and then the things I lean on lose their meaning and I find myself careening to places where I should not let me go. Even James Taylor, who makes fun of the people who believe, you can believe it if it helps you to sleep. Singing works just fine for me. If it feels nice, don't think twice. You do you. Whatever makes you happy. Even James Taylor has the sobriety to say, every now and then, the things I lean on, the things I've built my life on, they lose their meaning. And I find myself careening to places where I should not let me go. Friends, Christ has come to rescue us from the careening. He has come to give us something to lean on that will never lose its meaning. He has come to satisfy us for everyone 
who would turn. Would you come to him? Would you find your satisfaction in him today? Let's pray. God, you're so good to us. You've given us your word. And while I am an imperfect explainer of your word, you are a perfect savior. And you can preach a better sermon than I can. And I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will uh, instruct each, each one of us in the room how it is that we should respond to the word of God. You have come and given us living water and you have called us to drink. Those who have no money without price, you've called us to the bread of life, your son Jesus. I pray that if there is anyone who has never found their satisfaction in Christ, that today would be the day that they do that. And I pray for the rest of us, God, who wake up every morning with the temptation to live and to pour our lives out for our kingdom, our sandcastles, instead of for your kingdom that lasts forever. Would you wean us? Would you draw us and call us away from self and toward a more meaningful life for your kingdom and your glory? We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.